Hello, welcome back to another bonus episode here. For those of you that listen to the Traumatic Brain Injuries podcast, we're going to dive a little bit deeper for those of you that were interested and didn't quite get satisfied with the pathophys. So what we want to talk about today is some of the more minute points about cerebral perfusion pressure, the Kelly Monroe doctrine, and then how we tie all those things together in the pre-hospital system. So welcome back, Dr. George. Oh, thank you for having me back. Not that we had that long of a break in between, but here we are. Just enough to keep talking and realize that we probably can talk a little bit more. Yeah, for sure. So let's start with the concept of the Kelly Monroe Doctrine. So can you talk a little bit about what that is? Yeah, so this is uh, way back when, 1700s, 1800s, both uh, Monroe and Kelly uh, were looking at this and basically taking their their findings together. What they learned was in their doctrine states that the sum of the volumes of the brain and CSF, so cerebral spinal fluid, and intercerebral uh, blood, that is constant. It must remain constant. And as we increase one for one reason or another, there has to be a reciprocal decrease in either one or both of the others. Uh, so this is a constant finding, kind of a physics thing. Which makes sense because we have a confined space of the skull and it has three things in it, three main things that we're looking for, right? It has the brain itself, it has a cerebral spinal fluid, and it has the blood. And if we're in a confined space like the skull, in order for it to accommodate the same total volume, as one increases, the other one decreases, right? And we know that. So for those of you that are really number hungry, it's about 80% brain, 10% blood, and 10% CSF in a healthy patient. So let's talk a little bit about how does cerebral perfusion pressure work? What, what is the point of that? And, and why do we see changes? Yeah, so I think, you know, cerebral perfusion pressure is calculated as, as our mean arterial pressure minus the uh, uh, intracranial cerebral pressure. So when we look at that, so it's your MAP minus your ICP, really what that's stating is, is that you have a MAP, a pressure pushing blood up into the brain, and that you have something fighting that back, which is your ICP. So as one gets higher, the other one will either have to compensate or you're going to drop your perfusion pressure, which is bad. We need perfusion pressure. We need the blood or brain to be seeing this blood. And if we increase our ICP for whatever reason, we can't regulate that. We either have to increase our MAP to keep that CPP up or we're going to see a drop in the CPP, which is going to lead to a secondary insult. So if you listen to the traumatic brain injury talk, I mentioned a patient I had where um, he had fallen and suffered a head injury. And when we obtained his vital signs, his blood pressure was like 275 over 130, 140. So doc, why would the blood pressure be increasing like that? What is the brain sensing and why is it doing that? Yeah. So really what the brain's sensing is it's, it's sensing a drop in that cerebral perfusion pressure and, and, it, and it's sensing this drop because the, uh, the ICP is precipitously going up. There's something bleeding in, in one case that's increasing the pressure in the brain. And despite, you know, trying to regulate that, despite de- uh, you know, increasing venous output, decreasing the CSF size, all these things that we've seen in confined space, it can't keep up with that. So it's going, the body's going to try and ramp up the map. It's going to increase the blood pressure. The brain's saying, I need to see blood. I don't have a flow. Something's constricting. Something's preventing there from being flow. Uh, so the brain's sending off signals saying we need to increase our, uh, our blood pressure uh, is one reason we're seeing that. Well, your explanation was so riveting. I almost fell out of my chair I there. saw that. That was great. So when we talk about the actual findings that we're looking at when someone has increasing intracranial pressure, a lot of things that you'll see in the textbook, even from an EMR level, you might see um, something called Cushing's triad. I know when I took my AEMT test, I had about five questions in this, which was actually kind of surprising for me. 
what is Cushing's triad and what would EMS see that would clue us in that, okay, maybe something is causing an increase in intracranial pressure. Right. And this is one tip off. And it's, there's a reason they test so much on it is because it is a tip off to, especially in traumatic injury, as to when we're dealing with a pure uh, traumatic brain injury or head injury versus, let's say, uh, a normal traumatic injury, right? So one of the tip offs here is that as we're seeing the increase in uh, ICP, we see a high blood pressure, so hypertension, pretty severe, pretty obvious. Uh, but we'll actually see a decrease in the pulse, uh, in our pulse, so we'll see bradycardia, and we see very irregular respirations. So part of that, the, the concept there is, is sometimes you'll actually very early on see a hypertension and tachycardia. And that's the last thing I want you to think about that, because that's very theoretical and kind of if you were right there when the patient had the head injury, for the most part, what we what we pick up on is that bradycardic episode. So basically, as the blood pressure is increasing in the body and ramping up to increase our CPP or to maintain our CPP, I should say more accurately, and increase the blood flow to the brain, baroreceptors and aortic arch, they're detecting all this increased pressure. So the rest of the body is feeling this increased pressure. And those baroreceptors lead to increased vagus nerve stimulation, which is going to drop our heart rate. So the, the bradycardia is actually really in tune to the fact that our, our hypertension is happening, that this increased blood pressure. As far as why we're seeing these really uh, irregular respiration patterns uh, and, and irregular breathing, a lot of that has to do with the increased ICP itself and that that's uh, distorting the respiratory centers uh, in the brain. So that, that pressure is pushing on the respiratory centers and causing really irregular respiration. So those are our tip-offs uh, for the Cushing Triad. And is it true that if you're starting to see irregular respirations, we're starting to think that this is a pretty progressed closed head injury because the pressure has gotten so much, it's actually pushing down on all the respiratory locations in the brain? Yeah, that's definitely traditional thinking. Uh, I think that we get a little bit more specific when we talk about findings, uh, when we think about uh, pupillary changes. So when it's uh, we have different types of herniations in the brain, that's going to cause blown pupils are the biggest one that we recognize, that when the pupil's not reactive, there's pressure pushing down. We have you know things called like uncle herniations, and different parts of the brain are herniating through different parts of the skull and causing these changes in our physical exam findings. So that, that blown pupil is usually a sign of herniation and a sign of concern. The other thing we always talk about, people hear about decerebrate versus decorticate posturing. You guys oh, yeah, about that yeah. before? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah exactly. for sure. And it's in our GCS, so everyone from an EMT all the way up through a you know critical care should be really comfortable with di differentiating those two. Right, and my lesson when I was learning, even back in EMT school many years ago now, I'm not going to say how long ago, um, <laughs> You know, is that uh, decorticate? Uh, think of think of you know people are flexing their arms upright, extending their feet, and that they're trying to hug themselves. So they actually uh, are less in a bad way yep. than the decerebral prostrate. And I always think that they're hugging themselves, saying, "Hey, I, I'm I'm doing better than you think. Uh, I'm not decerebral." So they're actually have less of a herniation. And what we see to get really in the nitty gritties is that. Uh, decorticate posturing, so corticulating crosses. I always think of their cross and then they're doing their cross and they're they're grabbing, uh, giving themselves a hug. These are lesions above the red nucleus, so they're not getting inhibition of what we call the rubrospinal tract. And that's what's causing them to flex these limbs. So their lesions actually higher up, which in some people would think, oh, that's, that's better or that's worse. It's not when we talk about lesions or the pressure points that are pushing on it, the higher up, the better, right? It's the lower down in the brainstem where we have more of the vital uh, brain functions, the breathing, the other things that are going to keep our keep ourselves alive. It's the higher up functions are, are higher up. So the higher up the lesion, actually, 
the more likely we are to keep our brainstem intact. So do cerebrate where we have extension at the arms, at the feet and the legs, that's a worse prognosis. And that's because the lesion of the pressure points and the herniation have now moved below that red nucleus. Yeah, and that, that's exactly what I was taught, too. I was always taught decorticate, think bringing to the core, decorticate to the core, you know, and they're protecting themselves. They have some level of, of uh, at least protection left. They're trying to, you know, protect themselves from this threat, whereas the decerebrate, you know, it's wide open, you know, like we always uh, hear the term like, oh, take me now, like they're completely extended, like I'm ready to go, like let me, you know, and that's that's obviously going to be more severe for sure. So I, I think we learned similar things, which is entertaining because we took separate programs, but it's kind of the same information that gets passed around. Yeah. So that's really cool. X number of years later, though, that's still how I remember oh, yeah. it. Yeah, you know, sure. it's like. <laughs> yeah. Yep, absolutely. You know, and um, what I always try to tell our EMT students and try to apply it to myself in the field is if you're suspicious of a head injury and you see a funky respiratory pattern, I mean, I know some really good providers that are like, oh, that's, you know, Biots, oh, that's Chain Stokes, oh, that's, you know, whatever, this, that, the other thing. Um, with the exception of Kusmals, which has a very specific uh, diagnosis, obviously, but the irregular respirations, if you have someone that's breathing funky and they're going apneic or they're speeding up and slowing down and deeper and slower, you should be thinking head injury as a differential, you know, and that's always for me, that's always a big cue of like, all right, let's go because it's important to note for EMS that closed head injuries are not a EMS disease. It's a surgical disease or a hospital disease, right? You know, this isn't something we're going to make the difference on by doing the IV. And there's not a lot in the ED we can do differently outside of, as we talked about in the last study, the epic TBI stuff, you know, really, really focusing on, on, on preventing hypoxia, uh, preventing hypotension and, and, and hyperventilation. These are things that are having great outcomes, but those are short term solutions. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So let's talk just a little bit about permissive hypotension because anybody that's ever taken any sort of tactical course or PHTLS or a trauma program, you've probably heard this new thing, you know, about the trauma triangle of death when it comes to normal saline administration or fluid administration in general, um, you know, but permissive hypotension, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is basically the concept that um, we don't need to be giving these people so much fluid that they, you know, have a blood pressure of 120 over 80, that there is a situation in uh, multi-system trauma where if they're achieving a map, you know, greater than, you know, 60, 65 in that area, and, you know, their systolic pressure is 80, 90, it, maybe that's okay, because as we're administering more fluid, we come into contact with the trauma triangle of death, which we know causes bad outcome, which is um, hypothermia from the cold fluid that we give, even if it's warmed, it's not it's not uh, the same as the blood temperature. We also have acidosis because we're looking at 4.5 to 5.5 pH in our normal saline. Um, and then obviously uh, destruction of clots, you know, as we dilute the hemoglobin and as we push fluid and raise blood pressure, we have the potential to cause rebleeding. So um, let's talk just a little bit about when should we be using permissive hypotension and why does it not work in an isolated TBI? Yeah, you know, I think permissive hypotension is something that we, we really bought into and in in a lot of ways it it makes a ton of sense right uh you know while i always use the term blowing the clots off i know we think about that or you know i think that's more the idea that the body physiologically is doing something that's actually right for the body when we're losing a lot of blood it's trying to shunt blood back it's trying to decrease blood pressure uh and that is not per se a, a bad thing to a point right and that's what permissive hypotension was getting at and discussing obviously over resuscitation of, of iv fluids um and doing much more of a targeted uh fluid re- uh, fluid repletion or volume repletion with blood and blood products whole separate discussion 
But yeah, the idea behind permissive hypotension kind of makes sense. And there's good studies showing good outcomes with that. Once again, as you said, from a fluid resuscitation standpoint, but preventing clot blow off. Um, if there's a part of the body that's bleeding, increasing the blood pressure through that area might inhibit or prevent there from being effective internal system coagulation pathways to help stop that bleeding as another part of the thought process. Yet, as we know from our EPIC TBI trial, hypotension is not a good thing in TBI. So kind of reviewing a lot of the studies that that gave us the basis for, for permissive hypotension and then putting our thinking cap on with EPIC TBI and, and saying, what, what do we do? You know, this was a question you actually brought to me a long time ago, and, and it spawned me into doing some research on it. And what you actually find is a lot of the studies that have guided us for permissive hypotension uh, excluded TBI patients from their studies. So they were not part of that. So anyone that was in that uh, polytrauma, multi-system trauma, uh, that they did the study for permissive hypotension did not have traumatic brain injury as, as a concomitant injury. So with that said, we really can't apply permissive hypotension when we have TBI as far as thinking about outcomes, especially in an isolated TBI situation. We don't want to be uh, saying, oh, this is trauma. Let's do permissive hypotension. We really need to be thinking more cerebral about it and say, actually, this is traumatic brain injury. And we should be following what what, what, what we were taught and what uh, what our studies showed when it related more to TBI, which I think Epic TBI is one of the uh, the strongest studies to date right now uh, guiding us in the field. Yeah, for sure. And and just to apply some of these concepts, we know from a you know systemic perspective that when we have our maps between about sixty and sixty-five, and that you know that could be related to sepsis if you wanted to talk about the sixty-five trial, or if you you know have the permissive hypotension and multi-system trauma excluding TBIs, like we said, sixty to sixty-five is okay. You know, obviously they're leaning a little more towards the sixty-five, but we know that that's going to have pretty good outcome. However, with TBI, when we specifically think of cerebral perfusion pressure, um, I don't know if you uh, remember off the top of your head, but our CPP, our cerebral perfusion pressure, is actually higher than our MAP by by its existence, right? Because we know that our CPP is MAP minus ICP. And uh, we're going to have some minor level of ICP all the time. Um, but as that goes up, it's going to be subtracting from our you know, from our, our maps going to be subtracted with the ICP to get our CCP. So if you have a map of 60, what, um, in a healthy patient, what's a healthy CPP? Well, I mean, a healthy CPP is generally speaking, uh, you know, the 50 to, a, to 100 plus, 150 even. And our body auto-regulates that on, yeah. on a normal circumstance. You yeah. know, talking about auto-regulation, going back to a little bit of that, is that really our body will auto-regulate the constriction of our arterioles and our arteries to control that and control what our, our CPP looks like. And it could do a really good job. People who live with hypertension, they, they actually have a... a different set point. <laughs> Their auto-regulation looks a lot different. And the idea is at some point at the extremes, the auto-regulation will fail. But unfortunately for people with traumatic brain injuries, what we do find is that they get dysregulation. The normal auto-regulation pathways that are in there to help control our CPP uh, through the constriction and dilation of our arteries, that gets totally disrupted by the presence of, of traumatic brain injury. Um, so that's one unfortunate uh, outcome of TBI is that we don't have that auto-regulation pathway to help us out. Yeah, so we can just go over some really quick math to illustrate it. Let's say you have a patient, you know, who's a trauma patient and they have a map of 60, right? Where we're, let's say, for example, we're looking for between 70 and 90 for a cerebral perfusion pressure. Uh, pressure. If you have a map of 60 and your ICP is, let's say it's only 20, 
right? So we're, we're looking at the math here. We say that the MAP minus the ICP, so 60 minus 20 equals your CPP. Although their MAP is 60, and as far as permissive hypotension would go, that, that's close to what we're looking for, that cerebral perfusion pressure is only 40, which we know is way too low for, for what we need to actually low. perfuse the brain. So this is just an example of how you can apply these concepts where if you're looking at a patient and the person with you says, well, their map is 60, it looks okay. If you know that that's a TBI, you should know right off the bat, even without much increase in ICP, they're already at that danger zone where they're going to be too low, right? Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, just to almost correct myself briefly, you know, when we talk about normal numbers, MAP is usually between 50 and 150. Our CPP is anywhere between 70 and 100. Um, and then, you know, ICP is normally less than 15. So anytime we get this increase in ICP up to 50, uh, excuse me, increase ICP up to 20 and our maps start dropping below, we enter that below 50 danger zone. That's where that 50 number comes for CPP. That's really the danger zone for, for our cerebral perfusion pressure, at least in our kind of standard run of the mill patient. Yeah, so if you were going to boil this down to the people that you work with and you were to take all these cool concepts that you're just eating up because it's so interesting and you wanted to get this information out to the brand new CPR-only driver, what we would probably say would be just know that in an isolated TBI or in a TBI in general, you're going to need a higher blood pressure than you would normally need in someone who's experiencing multi-system without a TBI. Yeah, everyone's guidelines uh, state by state are a little bit different what they're saying, but generally speaking, a systolic, you know, above 100, a systolic above 110 uh, in an adult is usually the preferred. Uh, you know, if you're talking about maps, 80, 90, once again, I'm giving ballparks, go off your, your local guideline and follow kind of uh, your local protocols, et cetera, for that. But that is what they should be kind of in that range. Uh, we're really looking to keep those systolics up above 100, above 110, and, and the maps above 80 or 90. For sure. That's a, that's a really great point. And it kind of brings into perspective why, you know, at least where we work, you have a traumatic brain injury protocol and a multi-system trauma protocol. And those can be slightly different for specific reasons. There's a reason why, you know, we don't just have one page that says trauma. There's, there's multiple different types of injury patterns that are treated a little bit differently for reasons exactly like this. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's worth noting that the Epic TBI trial I encourage everyone to take a look at it and and you know look at the summary, pull it up yourself, read it primarily. Uh, but they did a fairly good job of not excluding a ton of just trauma in general. Uh, unlike some of the permissive hypotension studies that we looked at that did exclude TBI, EPIC TBI trial actually did include some polytrauma patients as well. So um, once again, I think leaning more towards keeping the systolics up, keeping the maps up when we're concerned for traumatic injury will show us the better outcomes and is the best way to go. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll do my best to put the links in the show notes as well, too, so you can go take a look at that. Another one I know you and I are both big fans of is Rebel EM. They have a great podcast. They get a lot of information. I mean, they do a really good job, at least with the podcast, of boiling it down to just the meat and potatoes of each study and letting you know what the take-home points are. Um, and that uh, Salim Razai is just an incredible person, just a really, really smart guy. So I highly encourage you to go take a look at that. For anyone that's interested in progressing in this career, whether you know a lot of you are looking at going to medical school, some of you want to go to PA school, some of you want to go to paramedic school, or even just AEMT school, the thing that's going to get you across the finish line in those types of programs is having that extra little um, mutation in your brain that causes you to want to think about things. And I don't understand that. Let me let me grab some more information. Let me figure out why this happens. And like I always tell people I work with, never settle for you know not being wrong. Settle for being right. 
you know, you want to go through and figure out what happened and make sure that the next time, you know, you can be that person that says, hey, I saw this. Here's the physiology. This is what's happening. And you know that because you went and talked to the doc afterwards or pharmacy, you know, or CT, whoever's around, you know, those people are are the professionals and they can definitely add a lot of perspective to what you're seeing. Yeah. It'd be more like Nick and call me up and ask me a bunch of questions. And yeah, tell, yeah. Tell me what the literature says. Oh, yeah. Well, just, just interested, you know, I'm always interested. And, you know, I, I've pitched this before too, but at least for those of you that have been transporting to the local hospital here, don't underestimate those pharmacists. I know that they sit at oh, the yeah. end of the desk, but they are incredible people. And any questions you ever have, those guys, they're just a walking encyclopedia of pharmacology and mechanism of action. And, you know, they have all kinds of really interesting things. So if you had a patient and the protocol says, you know, don't give albuterol and you're curious about it, go ask the pharmacist because they know why that's there. And in fact, they probably had a lot of input when it comes to that stuff. Yeah, they're, they're the best. They're Absolutely really best. We have had them do multiple lectures for uh, Grand Rounds uh, up here for, for EMS and for HealthNet and critical care transport. We pull them in all the time and they're, they're amazing. They just a few months ago did did one so yeah yeah they're awesome well i really appreciate you being here again hopefully you guys can take some information from this and um i think if you are interested in progressing in your ems career these are the types of things you can start to add on top of what's in the textbook if you read the textbook and it's interesting this is the next step go out and figure out what other people around the world are doing why are they doing that way why does the evidence show these things what does the statistics say what are actually improving outcomes. And if it's anything from, you know, a high performance CPR program from King County, Washington, or if it's an epic TBI study, you know, or the 65 trial when it comes to sepsis, go out and take that extra little step and then bring it back to your agencies. You know, and if you ever feel like you're alone and you don't have anyone to talk to, you can always get in contact with me. It's nick at netsvt.com. You can go on our website, um, netsvt.com. Um, we have all kinds of courses and instructors that are ready to speak about this stuff with you and hopefully help guide you to the next step in your career, whatever that is. So, so thank you so much, Doc. Appreciate you being here. Thanks for having me as always.